Every week, a lot happens in Parliament. Debates rage, bills are discussed, and laws are introduced. So it's easy to feel like you don't quite know what's going on in the chamber. So we're lifting the lid and telling you exactly what happened this week in Parliament. This week, we saw Johnson take part in a virtual, rather tense PMQs, butting heads with the Speaker. We also talk about MPs' access to virtual debates and a discussion of whether students should be refunded due to the coronavirus. In the first story today, we rather predictably go to the parliamentary event of the week, Prime Minister's Questions. This week, it was extra special too, as it saw a very first in PMQ's history, virtual participation from the Prime Minister. It did look a tad odd with the multiple screens facing into the Commons, almost a bit like a scene from 1984 or some dystopian future, with the Prime Minister looking down on all those involved. Despite the optics of the event, it ran rather smoothly, and the Prime Minister didn't appear to have any you're-on-mute moments. The leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, wasted no time asking the Prime Minister about his statement on devolution. This was about the Prime Minister's call with fellow Tory MPs, in which he told them that devolution had been a disaster. Mr Speaker, devolution in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland is one of the proudest achievements of the last Labour government. Until now, whatever our disagreements, there's been a very broad consensus about devolution. So why did the Prime Minister tell his MPs this week that Scottish devolution is, in his words, a disaster? What has unquestionably been a disaster is the way in which the Scottish Nationalist Party have taken and used devolution as a as a means not to improve the lives of their constituents, not to address their uh, their health concerns, not to improve uh, education in Scotland, but constantly to campaign uh, to break up the UK. And that, in my view, would be a disaster. If he, if he doesn't think that would be a disaster, then perhaps he could say so now. You may have noticed that in the Prime Minister's response, he mentioned the SNP, or as Johnson called it, the Scottish Nationalist Party. This is not their name. They're called the Scottish National Party. A key difference. This is something that Speaker Sir Lindsay Hoyle noticed and corrected. Could, 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 could I just say it's the Scottish National Party, not the Nationalist Party? Otherwise, the phones will be ringing longer than I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. The national, but not nationalists, I see. Right. We can play pedantics another time. Keir Starmer. And what disappoints me is that the Scottish National Party, Mr Speaker, and I abide by your, uh, your, your ruling on their correct name. It, it's not a ruling, it's a matter of fact. <laughs> Clearly then, there was some tension between the Prime Minister and the Speaker. Not for the first time, and likely not for the last. Though nowhere near as tense as during the scathing remarks from Ian Blackford. Mr Speaker, no apology and no regrets from this Prime Minister. His attack on devolution wasn't just a slip of a tongue. It was a slip of the Tory mask. The fact is, Scotland has been completely ignored by Westminster. We now face an extreme Brexit, a power grab, and another round of Tory cuts, all being imposed against our will by a Tory government that we didn't vote for. Exactly. The real disaster facing the people of Scotland is another 20 years of Westminster government. Isn't In our second story today, we're going to quickly take you back to last week's episode where well, we told you about the controversy in the Commons over who could participate in debates, specifically regarding a Westminster Hall debate on breast cancer, 
that breast cancer suffering MP Tracy Crouch was unable to take part in because she was shielding. It's not just Westminster Hall debates, but also Commons Chamber debates that MPs not physically present can't take part in. But the pressure put on Jacob Rees-Mogg last week to improve the situation seems to have borne some fruit. Following an urgent question on Monday, Rees-Mogg committed to maximise what is possible within the limitations placed on us. He stated that it is unfortunately not possible to have virtual participation in Westminster Hall, but wanted to help those who are clinically extremely vulnerable to be able to virtually attend a Commons debates. Questions. My own friend, the member for Chatham and Aylesford, made a brave and moving appeal to be allowed to contribute more to our proceedings through virtual participation. While my understanding is that capacity constraints prevent us from extending Westminster Hall debates to members participating virtually, my honourable friend has certainly convinced me that we should seek to do more to support additional virtual participation in the Commons Chamber. I have therefore decided that in line with the Government advice that the clinically extremely vulnerable should not go into work, we should work with the House authorities to find a solution. I am exploring how we can support additional virtual participation in the Commons, despite capacity constraints, for those who are clinically extremely vulnerable, and aim to bring forward a motion before the House. Note that Rees-Mogg was clearly emphasising how MPs who are not clinically extremely vulnerable should still aim to come to work, as they are just like other key workers across the country. There were various objections to this proposal, for example from Tommy Shepherd, who argued that MPs should have the chance to take part from home. The leader keeps suggesting that MPs are key workers, but that does not mean that we need to be in this chamber in order to do our work. Indeed, in any other workplace, we would be criticising employers who did not provide facilities for their workers to work from home, especially when we know them to be available. And introducing virtual facilities on a restrictive basis is not going to work. Members should not have to disclose private information about their health in order to have the right to represent their constituents. So that's why the leader must trust that if a member chooses not to be here, it is for a proper and honourable reason, and therefore allow all members to take advantage of the virtual facility. On Thursday, a report from the Procedure Committee was released that argued that all MPs who feel they can only take part from home should be allowed to do just that. The government said that it would review the report and respond, but remains keen to have as many MPs attending Westminster as possible. Our final story today is on university issues during the coronavirus crisis. Chris Evans started the discussion, raising multiple petitions that had reached the threshold for debate, all asking for university fee reductions or partial or full refunds due to declines in teaching following university strikes and then the Covid pandemic. The fact that so many petitions reached the threshold highlights the issue's importance. For many, gaining a place at university is the culmination of a lifelong dream. However, it comes at a cost. English universities can charge up to £9,250 a year in tuition fees. So, for example, if someone did a three-year course at £9,250 a year and got £6,378 a year for maintenance, they would graduate with £46,884 worth of debt. That is before interest is added. By any stretch of the imagination, Sir David, that is a massive amount of money. Therefore... You would think, if someone is invested in that type of money, they deserve an adequate return on that investment. And if they do not get it, 
they should be properly compensated. Simply put, students want value for money. I would like to take some time to explain two of the ways in which many students feel they did not receive this value for money due to the pandemic and to strikes. The Petitions Committee conducted a survey of people who had signed relevant petitions and received over 25,000 responses from Cunningham students. More students who responded told the committee teaching hours at the universities had fallen and were either dissatisfied or very dissatisfied with the quality of education they were currently receiving. One student enrolled on a clinical course expressed disappointment at the quality of their teaching. Clinical practice did not take place, raising the fear. And they have said, it isn't a case of will the medics, dentists and vets of this year come out as less trained individuals, but a question of how much poorer their practice will be. The drop in teaching hours affects art students as well. Seminars and debates are difficult to translate into online teaching, especially when there are international students who are often in different time zones due to the pandemic. He emphasised that students' concerns are not merely financial, but also related to mental health, raising some harrowing statistics. As we've recently seen, Sir David, in Manchester, with the rent strike and the occupation of Owens Park by students, it is clear many feel let down. One student, Izzy Smitherman, told the BBC, they brought us here for profit rather than our safety. Another student has said the students feel they were tricked back into university in September. Students feel greatly mistreated by the government. Blame for the rise in COVID cases, locked in accommodation new cities with no support network, and not receiving the teaching they have paid for. The government's lack of engagement with these issues is severely damaging. The lack of clarity and difference in what students were led to believe and the reality of their teaching has affected students' mental health hugely. Since the beginning of the academic year, a student has died every week from suicide. Let me just repeat that horrendous statistic. Since September, every week, a student has taken their own life. Every week. Parents have been told that their child died alone at their university. Every week, friends and families grieve for a life cut short. And still the government has not addressed their issues. A few members contributed to the wide-ranging debate, including the university's minister. She described what the government is doing to provide mental health support, as well as being keen to emphasise that the transition to online teaching should not be delivering worse quality, but that there have been some failings by universities. Further, she raised that there are systems in place for applying for refunds. We have heard from some accounts today of students who feel the quality, the quality of their education has declined. And my message to those students is that there is a system in place First of all, a student should pursue the official complaints procedure at their university. And then, if they remain unsatisfied, they should go to the OIA. Without this first stage, institutions would not have the opportunity for early resolution of complaints with students. So it is important. And I do hear the concern that students may be reluctant to come forward. But I want to reassure all students, that the Office for Independent Adjudicators' good practice framework is very clear that there must be appropriate levels of confidentiality without disadvantage, and providers should make this clear to all students. However, despite this system being in place, there are concerns about its ability to properly handle an increase in applications. It should be noted that there was wide praise for staff who are trying their hardest at universities. Hopefully more can be done to help students receive the quality of university experience they're paying for, 
as well as more to protect the well-being of staff and students. If you want to be updated with what happens in Parliament next week, then be sure to subscribe to the channel. Or if you prefer, you can listen to the weekly update by subscribing to the Daily Briefing podcast feed, where you'll find our daily summary of the week's events and every Saturday, this week in Parliament.